I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I followed Adina Sussman's career in food for more than a decade. I remember first reading her restaurant reviews in this magazine called Manhattan and just thinking, man, who is this? She's good. She was that rare restaurant critic who cares about the read and the reader as much as she cared about the food and service. And she went on to become a first-rate recipe developer and cookbook co-writer. We've actually done three books together with our friend Chrissy Teigen. I remember Adina actually moving in with Chrissy so they could cook together and develop dishes 24-7. She's such a professional. Well, anyway, in that time, she has also become an absolutely wonderful cookbook author of her own. Her first book, Sababa, was all about the joy and diversity of the communities that live in Israel. And her new one, Shabbat, is about the beautiful gatherings, feasting, and celebration of rest that is the Sabbath. Hey, Adina, it is so great to see you. Uh, Right back at you. I'll take any opportunity to speak to you, and today (laughs) is no exception, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, especially for your new book. It's really gorgeous. And And I'm really excited to talk to you about it because it really opened my eyes to an entire culture, a way of cooking that I had truly not understood or even had even the the smallest inkling about. So Shabbat is, I knew this, right, is the Jewish day of rest, the weekly day of rest. It starts from sundown Friday through Saturday. Correct. And if I thought I knew even one thing about cooking for Shabbat, it was more around this idea that, you know, that's the day of rest, you're not allowed to work. So it's, if you're observant in this way, it's against the rules to turn on the oven and to do certain things in the kitchen. So right. it was more like logistical in my mind. Like, oh, how do you have dishes that you can put in the oven overnight so you can enjoy the next day and not actually turn on the oven? Like, right. that's what I thought it was about. But according to you, Shabbat, cooking is really not at all just about logistics. So tell us what Shabbat cooking is for you. Uh, for me, as someone who grew up with some of those underpinnings that were very focused on the technical, um, Shabbat was mm-hmm. also about uh, imbuing cooking with a sense of spirituality, not necessarily in the religious form, uh, of unplugging, of communing with the cooking process itself, uh, really about gathering mm. around the table with friends and family and just taking time around food to connect with people. Um, and the food itself can take so many iterations. Um, yes, there are long cooked dishes that you start the night before and cook the next day. But to me, um, Shabbat is about using cooking as a way to express your own concept of hospitality and, and sharing love at the table. So it's, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a real wonderful feel good, uh, cooking and eating experience. Yeah. And the ritual of that you describe in this really beautiful way. I think you quote a, a rabbi in your introduction who uses phrase where he describes Shabbat as a palace in time. Right. Tell us about that, <laughs> what that phrase means. Yeah, I think, you know, now people might talk about it like a bubble or sort of like, you know, a vacuum of some sort. And I think Heschel, who um, wrote a whole book about the Sabbath um, or Shabbat, um, he wanted to sort of advance the idea that there was something majestic uh, and regal about mm. setting aside time um, to re-commune with yourself, with your friends and family, um, over food, a lot of it as well. And I think using the term palace sort of like elevates it into something um, that makes it extra special and that you sort of stop for an extra minute and think about what he's talking about. So to me, um, in my house growing up, a palace in time was 24 hours where I had the undivided attention of my parents and my sister. We just had a lot of conversations without uh, interruption. There were several meals involved and the ritual of cooking uh, and preparing for Shabbat was something that was very exciting. Um, Our whole culinary week kind of centered around Shabbat, both getting ready for it and then experiencing it together. I love that. And of course there are, I mean, the book really talks about these iconic traditional dishes challah bread, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that are you know sort of known to be a part of that ritual. But then you have lots of personal favorites, contemporary dishes that you think you know really match this spirit. But let's start with like the old school. What are some of the iconic dishes that you love making, enjoying, sharing? 
Sure. Um, I think one of the things that I love making is chalant, uh, otherwise known as um, chameen in the more uh, Sephardic or Mizrahi North African tradition. Mm. Um, in Israel, once the winter comes, you know, once the rain starts hitting, maybe in December or January, you'll you'll you can literally smell the aroma of tens of thousands of bubbling pots um, <laughs> that are cooking for a minimum of twelve hours and up to twenty four hours that contain all the sustenance that you're going to need uh, for a late breakfast, early lunch to take you through the entire day on Saturday. So, I have several of these dishes uh, in my book. I think because they also help tell the uh, story of the many different immigrant groups that help comprise the Israeli mm. uh, sort of culinary tapestry, if if you will. So, you know, I grew yeah. up eating what one might call a quote-unquote Ashkenormative <laughs> cholent uh, because I come from an Ashkenazi <laughs> background. So it was very – it was a basic and delicious stew of barley, beef, onions, potatoes, um, and some spices that were cooked for a long time. But living in Israel, I discovered so many incredible iterations of cholent or chamin or dafina, as it's called in Moroccan. One of them is called chamin macaroni. Um, it's made with cooked spaghetti um, that you mix with layers of onions and potatoes and both chicken and beef, and you cook it in a pot for, you know, 12 to 16 hours and then you invert it. So there are sort of potatoes on the top that are just super burnished and deeply golden. And the pasta, the thing about these long cooked dishes is that you wouldn't imagine that these ingredients could sustain such long cooking, but they take on lives of their yeah, own right. and sort of transform into something else. Oh, that's interesting. And just so incredibly delicious. Um, and that's one of the ones that really stands out to me. And another one um, that starts with something called pakela, which is an irony, long-cooked concentration of fried kale or spinach um, or Swiss chard that sort of becomes really deep green and oily and you stir that into the stew and it gives it this incredible green sheen and sort of a real minerality and wonderful flavor um, that's very specific to uh, to certain immigrant traditions in Israel. Oh, that's so interesting. And delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and I would say another traditional dish that I have in the book is my grandmother Mildred's fruit compote, um, which she made with all kinds of wonderful dried fruits. Um, hers was quite sweet. She would sort of stew the dried fruits in uh, a simple syrup uh, for a long time mm. until the fruit softened. And she would come to California and buy all the dried fruits from local farmers, like oh, cool. prunes and dried plums and dried apples. There was one in particular, Mariani, that she loved, and she used to buy a lot of dried fruit from them. And while I loved my grandma Mildred's compote, which she jokingly called compost, um, I <laughs> would... Um, I decided to lighten it up a little bit. I introduce some white wine into it. I add quite a bit of lemon juice to give it a brightness and I add fresh grated ginger as well. So it's very much a nod oh, to cool. my grandma's recipe, but it has sort of a little bit more lightness and you know, you could even sort of spoon it over some vanilla ice cream or a piece of pound cake or eat it on its own and the flavor kind of deepens as it sits in the refrigerator, you know, for a few days. Oh, really cool. And so like, you're totally living this thing that I found in the book, right? Which is, you know, there are these iconic traditional dishes that um, are known and you love them, you respect them. In some cases, you present them in a very straightforward way. And But, you know, your mind is always thinking. And as you also noted, living in Israel, you're actually surrounded by so many different cultures. You write about a neighbor who's uh, Ethiopian and she yes. has a particular bread that she makes. Um, yes, and there's this other bread named, uh, pardon me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, but Haknun. Yeah, Jachnun and Fanta's Jachnun. bread is called Dabo. We could talk a little bit about, you know, breads yeah. in Israel and, you know, yeah, the role yeah. that they play on Shabbat. I mean, the the iconic uh, Shabbat bread for many is just sort of a, you know, a three braided loaf of, you know, eggy, delicious, um, sort of somewhere between a brioche and a challah bread. Um, but in Israel, you know, so many of the breads that are made are are come from different ethnic and immigrant traditions. So Fanta yeah. Prada, my friend who owns an Ethiopian restaurant that fortunately for me is only a three-minute walk from my house, um, makes <laughs> a wonderful Shabbat bread called Dabo. Um, you know, Ethiopians are most known for injera, the yeah. fermented um, sort of thin lacy pancake made uh, with teff. Um, yeah, it's very chewy but and springy and sour. And chewy, springy, fermented. With, yeah. 
Yeah, and just wonderful. And But on Shabbat, they make, you know, everything about Shabbat is distinguishing between the week and the weekend. So, mm. you know, there are a lot of ceremonies that also, like, you light candles to mark the end of the week and the beginning of the weekend. You also light candles at the end of the weekend for the same reason. And, you know, we don't typically eat challah during the week. In my house, challah was something we ate on Shabbat, and it's something festive and special. So Fanta made this dabo bread that she grew up eating, and it's a very yeasty delicious bread that has some warm spices in it and turmeric and it does like a really quick rise and you line a pot with uh, parchment and you pour the dough in it and cook it on the stovetop actually to get a really crispy crust underneath and then invert it and it just has a wonderful rich uh, yeasty flavor Uh, and then jachnun is another traditional bread for the Sabbath. Um, That one specifically does speak to the proscription against cooking on the weekend. You put it in a pot a special pot that's designated just for making that and another Yemenite bread called Kubana. Mm-hmm. But Jachnun is these very gossamer thin sheets of dough that are, I would say, very generously lavished with clarified butter or butter yeah. um, or or margarine, <laughs> which is a thing in Israel because um, a lot of people don't eat dairy foods with meat foods. So sure. sometimes they'll use uh, margarine. Um, and then it's rolled and often drizzled with a little honey or sweetened with sugar. And then the logs are sort of packed into this pot and sealed and then steam cooked on a hot plate or in an oven for, again, like 12 to 16 hours. And Then you sort of pull apart these layers of dough from around the log and eat them with fresh grated tomato and hot chili sauce and a hard-boiled egg. And it's like this whole amazing meal. And it's become a cult favorite in Israel that's you can buy uh, on Saturdays in like the equivalent of 7-Eleven here. You know, like they sell the whole kit. They sell the hot jachnun. It comes in a little – there's a little hot box in every convenience store that has the jachnun. And then you go to the refrigerator case and you get – um, the hot sauce and the tomato that come in little uh, containers. So Jachnun is wonderful. And I learned how to make it from the mother of the um, owner of the coffee shop that I frequent every morning in the Carmel Market. And that's just something else that I love about a lot of the recipes in the book. They're very much informed by my daily life in Israel and the incredible connections with people that I've made living here. Adina Sussman is the author of Shabbat, Recipes and Rituals from My Table to Yours. We'll be back with her and take some of your questions together in a minute. Then we turn to the world of rice with Chef J.J. Johnson, author of the new book, The Simple Art of Rice. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to Adina Sussman right now about the beautiful food of her new cookbook, Shabbat, recipes and rituals from my table to yours. And we're taking your cooking questions. Let's get back to it with her. You know, in Israel, Shabbat is as much a a cultural construct as it is a religious one. It's Mm. not, it's, everyone creates the ritual that best suits their family, their friends, their time constraints. Um, Most of it is organized around a Friday night dinner. The whole country kind of slows down and quiets down, which is a lot for Israel. You know, any (laughs) time that Israel can be a little quiet is is a blessing. (laughs) Um, And um, I love 
having Shabbat dinner. Um, I love hosting Shabbat dinner. I love being invited. Uh, it definitely feels different than the rest of the week. There's, there's no uh, public transportation uh, in a lot of Israel. So it's just very quiet. It's an urban place in Tel Aviv and it's a lot quieter. Um, the whole country feels like it's taking a breather mm-hmm. and everyone can be welcome at the Shabbat table. It's To me, it's a Jewish concept that can be applied to anyone's uh, meal setting. It's about having an expanding table, having room for the unexpected guest, not worrying too much if you have exactly enough food for the amount of people that you have, um, inviting, um, you know, stimulating conversation, giving everyone a voice at the table, singing songs, um, and, you know, making sure your phone is not turned on, like having just sort of a, a sort of social contract of disconnection for a little while so you can reconnect through food at the table. Yeah, I love it. Palace in time. With a great kitchen. <laughs> yeah, palace in the kitchen. One more dish I should mention is one of your favorites that you've written about, potato kugel. I know. I know. <laughs> well, um, my potato kugel is, is extremely influenced by yours. Um, <laughs> so tell us about your potato kugel. Yeah. So my grandma, Mildred, again, was was famous for her kugel. She had this sort of uh, oblong, rectangular grater with a handle that wasn't, you know, razor sharp, but you would mm-hmm. put it over a bowl and sort of grate potatoes on top of it and so until they were kind of pulpy as yeah, opposed yeah. to shredded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These days I either use a food processor or a hand box grater to grate my potatoes, but I'm always interested in the contrast between crispy and crunchy. And it's a long cooked, uh, savory potato casserole that has ideally like a really crisp crust and a really creamy interior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I really pack mine with eggs and I would say use a grandmother approved amount of oil <laughs> and, um, and a lot of salt and a lot of pepper and cook it for a really long time and preheat the oil in the um, casserole dish so that when the batter hits the heated oil, it creates this instant sort of crust Sizzle, around yeah. the edge that just develops as you bake it. And I was really excited to, I haven't made kugel for a while because it's been about 95 degrees in Israel uh, for the last three months. So uh, I filmed filmed the making of the kugel today um, and just every time I make it, I'm smitten by it and everyone else around me is just really taken by the simplicity of the dish, the elemental nature of it, and just how incredibly delicious it is and what a textural contrast you can achieve with so few ingredients. I mean, it's basically like a giant oversized latke. Yeah, I love that. I love that comparison. In my head, it was like, oh, it's like if you like pumped up a huge like McDonald's hash brown, which... Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. To my mind, is one of the world's most perfect foods. It's McDonald's hash brown. It is. Like, it's like but you I, have I, you that know, crunch I, all I, around the side, but interior, it's like almost creamy. It is. And we've talked a lot about the traditional dishes, but they're just really a lot of the book is, is similar to Sababa. It's a lot of fresh salads. It's sort of my twist mm-hmm. on seasonal local produce. There's just a lot of really fun, easy to make salads and side dishes that continue to deepen the exploration of sort of the Middle Eastern pantry, but, you know, sort of uh, geared towards the, sh- uh, the Shabbat table. Yeah, totally. Well, we have some listener calls, and sure. one of them, I think, is perfect for this moment. So let's go to Marie right now. Hi, my name is Marie um, in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Marie. And I was wondering about how to spice up my soups and broths. Not like make them spicy, but just maybe some ideas for more exciting options for soups and broth recipes. Thank you. Great question, Marie. Should I just get right in there, Francis? Yeah, get right in there. So, Marie, I would say you could... Uh, brighten it with hawaij, which is a Yemenite spice blend that mm. you can have in the pantry. And just I throw it into my chicken soup and a lot of stews. It's a mixture of turmeric and white pepper um, and other spices that just give like a real brightness of flavor. Um, ginger. I also ginger really, in that one, right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of ginger in there too. Yeah. Um, Yum. And I also really like to, there's a, a condiment that I sort of invented <laughs> In Shabbat book that I calling schugachuri, um, and it's it's kind of a mixture of schug, which is a traditional Yemenite hot sauce, but that's very spicy and concentrated, mixed with chimichurri. So I loosen up the schug with shallots and a little bit of vinegar and some mm. more tender herbs, and it creates like a a beautiful herb mixture that I think is really great stirred into soups. 
Um, you know, if you think about the idea of like adding fresh tender herbs to like a Vietnamese pho, it's kind yeah. of a similar idea. You add these herbs, um, this herb laden mixture, and it kind of like radiates around and the oils carry the flavors and it just really brightens and deepens the flavor of the soup. Yeah. I love that idea just in general too, like having something that has like a lot of freshness, like the herbs, but also oil and, you know, to stir into soups, like that can match with so many, if you have a chicken soup, you have a vegetable soup, you have so many different soups, you can yeah. just finish with that, change the character of it. You know, she was, Marie was mentioning spices, um, like a great spice blend, like Hawaji said, like to have in your pantry or to have, you know, something like yeah. the shug or, or the, the shugachuri. <laughs> like but you could fridge. also, you could just, yeah. But you could also put a whole head of garlic in a giant pot of soup just to infuse it with sort of, you know, not peeled, just like put it in mm. there to infuse the soup with garlic. You could also take, you know, a lot of times I'll just take a piece of ginger and throw it into my chicken soup to infuse it with flavor. Sometimes I'll take a sweet potato if I have a broth that I feel is a little bit too savory and I'll just cook it again. I'll throw an entire sweet potato in there. It'll also give it, or a yellow beet, it'll give it a little sweetness and a little more of a golden color. So there are just all oh, kinds cool. of things you can do to play with both the color and the flavor of your, of your broths and soups. I love that. All right. Well, Marie, I hope you have some nice all-purpose suggestions to go with. Um, you also mentioned, Adina, uh, that it's 95 degrees where you are. You live in the market. <laughs> I'm sure you are laden with cucumbers. So let's talk to oh. Darlene. Hi, this is Darlene from Richmond, Virginia. I have a question. So I'm in my fourth season with a great CSA that I love. Um, but every year there's about a month where I get four to five large cucumbers a week. And I live alone, and it feels like I have to eat cucumbers like it's my second job, even when I manage to pawn some off on my coworkers or neighbors. So I've done different cucumber salads, pickles, salsas, cucumber chips, cucumber cocktails, even cucumber bread where I substitute it for zucchini in a zucchini bread recipe. Um, I've seen some recipes online for stir-fried cucumbers, but I haven't tried it out because, honestly, cu cooked cucumbers seem a little strange to me. I'm up for trying it, but I don't know what kind of textures or flavors I should be looking for. Is it basically like stir-frying summer squash? Do you have any tips or recipes to share? Thanks. Love the show. <laughs> well, thank um, you, Darlene. I, I just want to step in and say I am a fan of the cooked cucumber. I understand because it, it doesn't really appear ever in like most Western cuisines that I can think of. So I think it does sound weird to people, but um, and I... I grew up with it lightly cooked. If we cooked it, we would steam it um, in a dish with a very light seasoning. It wouldn't be like a dark, intense stew with lots of soy sauce. We would do it um, maybe steamed with some uh, really savory little tiny shrimps in like glass noodles or something. And it has like such a beautiful, mellow, like almost floral, melony flavor, but without like intense sweetness. And it's just a really beautiful fresh accompaniment to like what I think was being like light colored foods. But now that I've said my piece about lightly stir frying or lightly steaming cucumbers, Adina, you live in Cucumberville, so you go for it. <laughs> okay. I have two ideas. One, Francis, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, there's a recipe from Chrissy Teigen's first cookbook <laughs> that you edited. And that you wrote with her. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. The, there is an amazing uh, stuffed cucumber recipe that involves cooked cucumbers. Um, she made a meat stuffed a cucumber That's soup. Right. That, and uh, from, her mom made. Her mom made a Thai soup that she just absolutely loves. And riffing on that idea, I think it could be really interesting to hollow out the cucumber and stuff it and bake it sort of like a, a zucchini. Mm. Um, you know, I, I like what happens to vegetables when they sort of are overcooked. They could have soften and slump around the filling. And I could mm. see maybe salting the hollowing out the zucchini, the, the cucumber, salting it to to get rid of a little bit of the water, maybe stuffing it with meat or, or vegetables or grains and then roasting it or baking it with a little bit of sauce. I think that would be really interesting and delicious. Um, what do you think about that, Francis? I love that idea. It's almost almost never a bad idea if you're like unfamiliar with what to do with a vegetable. It's just roasted grill it you know like yeah. get some good char caramelization yeah. on it for for yeah. cucumber i would say i'm not saying it wouldn't work i mean god knows you can grill watermelon and it's delicious yeah um but there's something about the delicacy of cucumber where i like it cooked with less char but like softening it like you said like 
uh, like a nice gentle bake with a stuffing or in Chrissy's soup, like you said, like it's basically poached in the soup. Poaching. Yeah. Um, with that beautiful kind of like meatloafy, sausagey kind of stuffing or mm-hmm. um, or like the dish I'm I'm remembering, like this kind of like very gently stir fried um, just to kind of cook it through and wilt it a little bit. Salt, little sugar. Um, and with something like shrimp, like we're mm. just going for like a beautiful, clean flavor is just really, really nice. Yeah. And then you can also juice cucumbers, especially if you have real biggies. Oh. I mean, I have a cucumber cooler cocktail in my in the new book that... Um, you you basically just blend the cucumbers in a blender with a bit of water and you know squeeze out the liquid. Um, and you can save the solids for other things, but then I mix the cucumber juice with gin uh, and lemon juice and a little bit of like a mint and ginger simple syrup. It's like it makes a wonderful refreshing cocktail. So I love juicing cucumbers. Oh, that's too. cool. Yeah, cucumbers are super underrated. Yeah, like people just think of the, the, the three slices of like that watery thing in your salad, but like. Oh, they're so beautiful when they're good and when you really feature them. The well, Splendid Table, the cucumber episode. Yeah, <laughs> that's next year. We'll, we'll do that next yeah. year. <laughs> well, Dina, this has been such a blast. I am so happy for you. I'm so excited about your new book. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat is for everybody. <laughs> oh, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Thank you. Adina Sussman's new book is Shabbat, Recipes and Rituals from My Table to Yours. She left us with that recipe that I'm fascinated by, the overnight bread called Jaknun, rolled Yemenite Sabbath bread. You can find it at splendidtable.org. The chef J.J. Johnson has been known for a lot of different things through his career, When I first heard of him, he was leading the kitchen at the revival of this beautiful, classic Harlem jazz club called Minton's and its restaurant, The Cecil. There, he became known as a chef mixing African, African African-American, and Asian cuisines. And from there, he's become a champion of rice. And look, I think actually rice needs some ambassadors, despite it being the most eaten food in the world, because so many people are intimidated by cooking it. JJ's new book is called The Simple Art of Rice, and it covers all the basics, as well as having tons of great rice dishes. Hey, chef. It's great to have you. Oh, Francis, a pleasure. How you been? I've been okay. I'm, I'm not as okay as you are, seeing that you're in the Bahamas, but I, I'm doing okay, <laughs> considering I'm here, not there. But <laughs> anytime, you call, anytime you call, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm going to pull up, so don't worry. <laughs> well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. So, okay, I want to get into rice with you because I know this is something you're very passionate about. As am I. You know, I grew up Chinese. We ate rice at pretty much every meal. But I also grew up in like a a majority white town. I remember thinking it was really unusual, right? Like it wasn't the staple of anyone else's meals when I was growing up that I knew of. And of course, I would obviously later learn that lots of cultures, cuisines celebrate rice but it took me a long time to realize that many cultures around the world love rice just as much <laughs> as we do. So how did you grow up with rice? Oh, that's so crazy. I grew up in a predominantly white town in Northeast Pennsylvania. My table of rice was my Puerto Rican grandmother. Um, I could never pronounce abuela as a kid. So my <laughs> grandmother's name was BB, which is a which is a name that is across a lot of cultures. Sure, and yeah, yeah. she would make beautiful rice dishes like asopao or roast con condulas or chicken and rice mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. paella. And the I think the fondest memory for me as a kid, as a at like t- ten years old, I still remember it was at a dear friend of mine's house named Matthew Davis. He's Korean. And we would sit on the countertop and his mom would make this beautiful rice. And she would add a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of salt. You, I can smell it. You can, I can see the steam still. Mm. And that was the first time that for me was like, oh, your table has rice. My table has rice. And it tastes really good. Yeah. But how do you become interested in professionally? Because I... I there's a part in the introduction to your book where, where you write that, you know, obviously you, as you were coming up in restaurants and a lot of times in fine dining restaurants, rice was never really part of the menu. So how did you turn around and be like, you know what, this is something that 
I really want to look into it. I want to research. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, rice professionally didn't come till later on in life, uh, till I started cooking at the Cecil. Um, and I was doing like heavy research into, uh, West African culture mm-hmm. and realizing that there was a rice grain called Glamorima that was like the grandmother of all grains and was researching where I can get it from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was doing a dinner at Blackberry Farm and I met a gentleman named Glenn Roberts from Anson Mills. Yeah. And I ran up I ran up on him and was like, <laughs> hey, Glenn, Glenn, I never met you before. I know you're busy. I'm, re- I, I'm researching this rice named Glamorima. Can you help? He was like, take a seat. He was like, what do you know about this grain? <laughs> and that was the first time that I really started to dive really deep into rice because everywhere I was traveling cooking, Mm-hmm. rice was at the center of the table the same way that you explained it where people were celebrating it people were getting excited about it it was something that was connecting everybody yeah. um, and that's when I started to realize that by you know my travels that I, w- I wanted to learn more about rice yeah and Glenn Roberts is a great figure he's like he's like sort of this incredibly I don't want to say nerdy because he's actually He's not like, you know, pocket protector and like, you know, thick glasses, but he's just this incredible wellspring of information about grains all over the world. He's like researched all these grains. He grows a lot of them in South Carolina. Yeah. And then he started to mentor me on my research. I would be like, what about this? Or what about this? Or what about that? And he would be like, no, look into this, look into that. And um, that's when I just started to really try to figure out how to make rice the center of the table. Um, and then I started to develop field trip, my restaurant, uh, fast casual restaurant. Yeah, right on. But the one thing I did learn through my my research of rice is everybody can't cook it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every everyone and everybody has their own perception of when rice is done, how mm, the sure. texture should be, sure, 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 what goes in it. Um, and I think that's the most fascinating thing about rice. It's, it is it is a conversation. Not even starter. It it just doesn't end. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that idea. A, certainly not everyone can cook. And it is something that I find sometimes even comfortable, confident cooks will be like, yeah, I don't know about cooking rice. I'm not sure. You know, everyone is so afraid of that pot of gluey rice, right? I mean, I'm I'm cooking here in the Bahamas, right? The Atlantis. And they have one woman who cooks the rice. And I was like, wow, this rice in your restaurant's good. I don't want anybody else cooking the rice. I want her to cook my rice that's going on this menu. And the whole, the chef and everybody started laughing. You don't think I cook rice? It's not about, I don't even want to know if you can cook it. I just know that this rice is great. And I want her to cook the rice. If she's cooking it amazing, I want her to cook my rice. So that, you know, when you find a, a you know, when you find the rice cooker, not the actual cooker you put on the table, yeah, 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 the like, actual think, person yeah, that can do it. The person who's the, yeah. The, <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> you just let her run with it, man. But it's funny on the on the flip side too. Like you have this beautiful book about cooking. Like it is something that is so funny. Like you said, it's a constant conversation, right? Because on one hand, it's like wow, when that rice is wrong, it's really wrong, and everyone knows it. But you don't also want people to be intimidated by it. So there is a sort of sweet spot. Personally, I use a rice cooker at home. I grew up with it. I literally have the rice cooker that I took from my parents' house. And they had it in their house for like 10 years before that. So I have this 30-year-old rice cooker that I still, you know, use. Wow. But I eventually had to learn to cook rice on the stovetop. And then I found some people boil the rice like pasta. Or some people literally will steam the rice. And like there's so many different techniques around the world. You're right. There's so many, there is so many different techniques. I think in the book... That's why we, I wanted to call it the simple art of rice mm-hmm. because it's like if you don't you don't have to go past the first 20 pages and be intimidated. Maybe you just need to learn how to make the perfect pot of rice. And a lot of people don't realize rice doubles in size. So you have to have a pot that allows the rice to grow. And most people when they're making rice, the rice is at the top of the pot. The water's there. and There's not enough room for that rice to grow to become what I call pearls when you fluff the rice. Mm. And then the other people put too much water or not enough water. And that's where, you know, before you start trying to make this fancy biryani or this beautiful, you know, curry rice, you can just learn how to make a perfect pot of rice that you can use every day in your cooking. Yeah. And then once you start with the basics, then you have 
all these beautiful dishes. That yeah, then you I, can go, right. I want to get to, but but like, I feel bad because we've talked so much about like, oh, how to mess rice up, how often we see rice messed up. But like, once you get it, then you got it. Correct. Coming up, more with Chef J.J. Johnson, author of The Simple Art of Rice. And we'll be taking your cooking questions. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking to Chef J.J. Johnson, author of The Simple Art of Rice. Let's get back to it. I want to go to some of our callers because we have um, we had some people calling with questions. Oh, you, boy. And, oh, boy. Oh, here we go. Here, here, we go. here is one of the <laughs> eternal debates. Let's go to Shayla. Hi, Francis. This is Shayla from St. Louis, Missouri. So my family is Iranian, and they swear by rinsing the rice in water until the water runs clear, then taking that rice and soaking it in salted water for at least a couple hours before cooking it. Is this actually necessary, or is this just an extra step? Please (laughs) settle this dispute between my dad and I. (laughs) Chef, you got to take Shayla's question because there is no way I'm going to step my foot into this kind of like generational <laughs> argument. Well, well, big, big up to St. Louis, Missouri first. Big up there. Um, well, you need to wash the rice so the water runs clear. I'm not, you have to do that, right? Because I, I want people to realize like washing rice is like washing vegetables, right? It's grown in the field. So you need to wash your rice. Hmm, okay. I think the second part about it, the reason why your family does soak the rice in salt water I don't do that is because they don't put salt in the water when cooking the rice, right? And when you're making Thai egg, you can't put, you can't add salt afterwards because then you mm-hmm. have to fluff the rice. Mm-hmm. So that's actually mm-hmm. a beautiful technique that your family has because the rice now has all that salt inside of it. And then when you cook it, it cooks beautifully because I state in the book, you salt your rice after you don't put salt in the water. Francis, Mm -hmm. because it takes the the rice longer to cook. So I actually like that step. I'd stay with it. Don't change it um, if you want that beautiful (laughs) essence and that flavor. And listen, if it works, no reason to don't, don't. If it works, don't break it. Yeah, exactly. You can mess with it, but why? Yeah. (laughs) I guess that's the question. Okay, let's go to another call. Let's go to Jen. Hi, my name is Jen from Minneapolis. I love making rice in a rice cooker and I try to make as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I always end up with some leftovers and I love making fried rice with it. But I'm wondering, is there anything else I can do with my leftover rice? Thank you. Oh, friends, what do you do with your leftover rice? I, you know, I, do, I put it in the microwave because I, <laughs> I eat so much rice with every meal anyway. It doesn't, like, it's like, well, I have other food to eat with it. I'm, I'm good. I do love making fried rice. Actually, I know I'm... My dear friend, uh, Grace Young, is going to be upset with me for saying this. Um, I do have a beautiful wok that she showed me, you know, the, the, the store to buy it from. She showed me how to season it. I almost always make fried rice in a nonstick pan um, because I, I find it easier that way. And I like how you get the, the, the wide surface area so you can get a little bit of crispness on the rice 
fried rice is not necessarily crisp. People have this sort of misconception. It's called fried, and mm-hmm. so you should like sear it. Um, it's traditionally not actually, Correct. but when you when I make it in this like sort of heavy nonstick skillet, I get to spread it out and I can like put a little crispness on it and then stir it back in. So I enjoy that. Um, although the other day I actually decided to kind of just take it a step farther and not stir it, and I basically made it's almost like a tadig, like you said, um, just the crispy rice crust. But mm-hmm. only that. That's nice. That sounds good. So I took rice out of the fridge. I broke it up. You got it. When you take rice out of the fridge and you're doing these kind of things, I find I have to break it up with my hand in a bowl first. Because breaking it up you in a pan, it, mm-hmm. it just it, you it, things start flying all over the place. Want clump, you don't want clumpy rice. Yeah, it's a whole mess. So I break it up in a mixing bowl with my hands. In this case, I salted it because it was already cooked. Um, I don't want to give a ratio because I, I was kind of eyeballing it. But I put like an egg beat into it just to have a little bit to stick it together um and i had some seasonings i, I just I, a very simple salt pepper i did a little bit like uh, garlic in there as well and then i um got my nonstick pan nice and hot laid in some oil and put in enough of the rice that it didn't come up really far it was like a half inch um maybe like a quarter inch quarter inch to a half inch and just let it crisp all the way slowly medium medium low heat maybe until it was like you can hear it crackle I lifted it up. I saw a nice golden brown, put a plate over it, flip the whole pan onto the plate, a little more oil, slide the you know non-brown side into the pan. And it was just making a pancake. Um, and it was beautiful. I cut it into wedges and I served it with different vegetables and like braised beans I had, just stuff like that, like almost like a, a beautiful flatbread. It was great. Listen, that sounds delicious. Did you throw, you had the, you said you had the egg inside and everything. Yeah, I just mean. a little bit of egg, just to bind it. You know, it, it wasn't like, it didn't taste eggy. It was just enough to like keep the rice to stick together. I'm a, I'm a big firm believer, like when you make rice, you should make, you should have leftover rice because yeah. it is great to, of course, we all pop, pop it in the microwave, of course, and make fried rice. I tend, um, recently since I've been working, working out a lot, that's a part of like, who I am now, mm-hmm. I've learned that leftover rice is a great protein to eat afterwards, and I add rice to my salads. Hmm. So I make a I make a salad, whatever my favorite salad might be. I break that rice up into a bowl, and I sprinkle it on top, or I mix it in, and I'm consuming that beautiful cold rice um, because you know now it's stated that the leftover rice protein that is coming off or that starch that, that rice starch coming off is good to build muscle. So I don't know if I'm going to build muscle, but <laughs> it's something that I'm trying, but I do love I do love using rice in salads. That's my next go-to um after fried rice. Oh, that's cool. But let me ask you this. I've never been a cold rice person cuz when my rice comes out of the fridge, it's always very hard and grainy. Um mm-hmm. h- how do you how do you prevent that? Like, because even when I'm reheating rice, I, I feel like I have to reheat it till it's like super piping hot to get that nice sort of chewy texture again. So when you take yeah, it out it of the fridge. It just has that, yeah, it just has that extra rice starch on the outside mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. So you have to break that back down, kind of like coagulation, right? When you're scrambling eggs mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. searing something. So yeah, when you're heating it, you have to bring it up to a certain temperature. I think it's like like over 165 degrees to get that rice to get that nice chewy flavor. It is cold rice is a texture you have to get used to. Okay, so you just you just embrace it. Yeah, I embrace it, or I'm using rice that already has hard texture, like black rice, or mm, okay, or you know brown rice, or uh, pearl green, you know the pearl green rice or red bootness rice. I will. I mean, I have that's a lot of the rice that I'm using when I'm making the salads okay, um, because it already has a hard texture versus like American white rice. Okay. So it's meant to be correct, sort of kind of firmer. Tell me about some mm-hmm. of those, those, those rice varieties. You know, they're not as common, obviously the black rice, the red rice, things like that. Tell us about those, the flavor, the texture, what you love about them. The black rice I love because it's like cultivated, it's grown black, it's cultivated black, it's served black. Nobody can do anything to it, right? The, the milling process is what it is. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that that's the best rice we, can, we should consume. It has vitamin B, it has amino acids. But if you aren't a firm, like if you, if you don't like firm textured rice, black rice is going to be something you have to get used to. But if you love barley and uh, farro and kind of those hard grains, mm-hmm, you will mm-hmm. love black rice. You should be adding that to your repertoire. Um, mm-hmm. 
And Black Rice has a great story, you know. The 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 heirloom name of Black Rice is really uh, Emperor's Tribune Black Rice because Chinese emperors had black rice. That's how you knew they were an emperor. And then forbidden black rice came on the market because people started dying rice black and people didn't know which rice was what. So then that's why you have this rice called forbidden black rice hmm. um, because it's very like forbidden. Who is it real? Is it not? Okay. Um, so the story is great there. Um, America's red rice is the Jefferson red rice that Anson Mills has that's after Thomas Jefferson uh, it is another firm rice. It has a very sad story attached to it, but um, but but I think it's also a great story to know that red rice was banned in America because it was you knew it came from West Africa and nobody wanted to have red rice on the table. Hmm. So Thomas Jefferson put his name in front of the rice, Jefferson red rice, to allow it to come on the table, and then that's when rice really started to become you know this cash crop. People started seeing it as a cash crop. So, uh, but the flavor is is great. Um, it kind of has like a when you get that outer layer burst into your mouth, uh, which is something really delicious that I love. You can use it for fried rice. You can put it in your salad. I I also like to pour the chicken um, grease from the roasted chicken on top of red rice. <laughs> so those are a couple of rices that I that I have. Uh, in the simple art of rice, I lay out about fifteen to twenty different type of rice that you can start to add into your pantry. Yeah, and these rices, like you said, like if you're expecting like a bowl of steamed white rice, or you're expecting like a jasmine rice kind of texture, it's it's very different. It's almost like like you said, like, it's more think of it more as like a whole grain, like a yeah, farro, yeah, yeah. which I love. Correct. I love farro, or like a you know the, like you would you know that you would boil and you would keep and you would mix in salads or you make grain bowls with or something. It's really, really great stuff. Okay. We have someone who wrote in with a question, and this is something that I really have never played with, so I'm really interested in your take on it. Can you talk about substituting brown rice or white sweet rice for arborio rice in risotto? Is it possible? Do you require a different proportion of liquid, longer cooking time? Is it a different technique? What do you think of that? Oh, Wow. <laughs> Let's pretend there are no Italians uh, to get mad at you when when you when you say you got what you have to say. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say that you're making risotto. You need to use a, you need to use the right rice, right? You need to use okay. that short grain rice, right? But you could take your jasmine rice or your long grain rice and put it in a food processor and pulse it like like broken rice or like. Mm, rice okay. for rice grits. Okay. And then you can cook it in the risotto form, but it will be more like rice grits and less like risotto. Okay. But you can still add those same flavors. And the reason why you're pulsing it is you're extracting out that starch and you cook it in the same method using your wooden spoon, stirring, 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 adding liquid, adding liquid. Mm -hmm. And then it will come out really nice. It just will start to be really uh, clump together, mm -hmm. but you can substitute that to get it. But you need a food processor to start to burst the, burst those grains out. Okay, I see. And so, so they asked about brown rice or white sweet rice, which is like the sticky rice. I think they mean that would absorb water very. The sticky rice is actually very different, right? And how it absorbs liquid. Yeah, yeah. The sticky, yeah. The sticky rice is like the more the more liquid you give it, the stickier it gets. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to cook sticky rice, like regular rice, because I like to see the grains and it still sticks together and I want to get some of that texture. So I cook it very non-traditionally, but, um, you could try to do it. I would love that person to try to do it with the sticky rice and send us a picture yeah. <laughs> to see how it worked out. Um, but I know with the jazz, with the long grain or jasmine rice, you can pulse it in a food processor and then you will be able to cook it like risotto or rice grits. Yeah. What do you think of short grain brown rice? You can try it. Uh, <laughs> brown rice doesn't have that high starch content like that. You know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. high rice starch content to, to to pull together. You would have to blitz it too to get it there, even in, in the short grain form. Uh, but you still want to cook it in that same method of risotto, like you're adding liquid as you go. Mm -hmm. I hope that's how you're cooking your risotto. Who, yeah. a, who's the person's name again, Francis? Uh, it's Arella. Arella, please cook the risotto. Don't just be pouring all that liquid in there and let it boil. Yeah. Uh, you got to add it. You got to add the liquid like, as you like go. Like ladle so, by ladle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Ladle by ladle, yes. 
I want to add one last thing about the the sticky rice. So um, there is a sort of legendary dish in Cantonese cuisine that basically doesn't exist anymore in restaurants, but it's magical. So like we don't use as much sticky rice as like Northern Thai cuisine, for instance, but we do have a, um, a tradition of like rice sort of stuffed in like lotus leaves that you steam with like, you know, savory sausage and chicken and mushrooms and stuff like that. It's a really delicious dish. And my dad used to always tell me about this dish where they would take that and make fried rice with it. But the way they make fried rice with it, the really traditional way is you make it from raw. So you take this sticky rice, start stir frying it with aromatics in the wok when it's raw. And then they add a little bit of liquid, stir fry it, liquid, stir fry it. And you basically have to, it's almost like a risotto, but you don't come out with a creamy, beautiful um, risotto, you come out with a fried rice, but with this sticky rice, with a chewy, glistening, kind of like crystally kind of grains of fried rice with all these aromatics and, and meats in it. But you basically have to stand there and stir fry it over a wok for 45 minutes while you're like trickling in water. And <laughs> that's why it doesn't exist because you can't take up a walk station in a restaurant for 45 minutes. Not at all. Not at all. You have a dedicated thing. You're going to sell like one or two of these. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, I, I did actually try it once and it was just, wow. It was, it was pretty awesome. But to you your did point. In your walk, you did it in your walk at home? Oh, I didn't do it. Hell no. <laughs> there was like this one guy you pre-ordered and he's like, okay, fine. Come at like, you know, 2.30 when it's not busy anymore and I'll hook it up for you. <laughs> But to your point, you know, there are um, truly, there there is no limit to the end of human imagination when it comes to cooking rice. And I'm glad we get to see, you know, the effort of your research in your book. Thank you so much, Chef. It was great talking with you. Nice talking to you too, Francis. Thanks for having me. J.J. Johnson is the author of The Simple Art of Rice. And he left us with a recipe for crispy rice salad with quick pickled onion. Find it splendidtable.org. Well, that is our show for this week, but there is one more thing, and that is we are deep into Thanksgiving planning already, and it is not too early for you to start planning too. What's on your menu? What do you need help with? We're looking for great questions to throw our amazing guest way for our annual Thanksgiving show, Turkey Confidential. So record a Thanksgiving question on your voice memo app and email it to contact at splendidtable.org. If we use it, we'll get you on the show with us. So send us those questions. We'll talk to you soon. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffer, Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lutke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and... Take time to leave us a review. It really helps us out. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.